Before we get to today's show, I'd like to invite you to become a part of this show. If you have hiked the John Muir Trail, whether you section hiked it or through hiked it, or if you intend to hike it in the future, then give us a call, 818-925-0106, and please leave a voicemail telling us a little bit about your experience, a memory, a hardship, what you're looking forward to, or how it affected your life positively or even negatively. At the end of this season, I am hoping to collect these voice messages and edit them into an episode focused on the John Muir Trail. So if you would like to potentially have your voicemail appear on the show, call us up, 818-925-0106. Leave us your name, whether that is your real name or your trail name, where you are located, and give us your thoughts within three minutes about the John Muir Trail. Thank you ahead of time, and let's get to the show. Welcome to episode 94 of the Go Get Outside podcast. This is your host, Jason Milligan. Welcome back. Welcome aboard. Today we will be speaking to E.C. Moe. She is a caver, canyoneer, and water quality scientist for Heal the Bay. I want to ask all of you to pardon my voice and coughing during this episode as I was still sick and getting over a cold when this was recorded earlier in the year. But I will not use up any more of your time. Let us go now and hear how a kid from Petaluma who used to dress as a cow for the annual Butter and Eggs Parade has found herself as an adult beneath the earth, beneath its oceans, and helping to protect our waterways. Let's go talk to Isimo. Isimo. I am a water quality scientist with Heal the Bay, uh, and in my quote-unquote free time, I do a lot of caving and canyoneering and scuba diving, basically anything that involves water. People don't <laughs> typically think of caving as involving water, but... Uh, well, <laughs> a lot of them can. are only formed by water, so I think of it as a very water-related sport. But, uh, yeah, always been very into the outdoors since a, a young age, and I always wanted to kind of help people get outdoors, especially in a place like L.A. Um, I'm relatively new to LA. I moved about five years ago and there's a lot of people who don't have that, that same connection to the outdoors even though even in LA here it's all around us. We've got parks and the river and ocean and everything. So, Where did you grow up? I grew up in Northern California um, a little town called Petaluma north of San Francisco. It's where they make Lagunitas beer which some people have heard of. <laughs> so you grew up in a beer town is what you're saying. A beer uh, town it became in a beer California. town. It was a uh, cow and chicken town when I was there. Still, still quite a few 
uh, cow pastures up in that area, which is actually quite beautiful. So which do you think has been better for the town, the beer or the cows and chickens? You know, cows and chickens got us started, but uh, I think we're, we're much more widely known for, for the beer. So does that mean you kind of grew up in a farming community or not really? Not really. Uh, my parents did not have a farm. My dad had a little, you know, um, vegetable garden in the backyard. So they did not partake in the cows and chickens? They did not. Although there were certain things around my hometown that I thought were very normal until I moved out. Um, like our, our big crosstown football rivalry game was called the Egg Bowl. We had a, a butter and eggs day parade every year and I like yeah, dressed course. up like yeah. a cow. <laughs> and I just thought everybody did that because it's, you know, what happens every spring. But, uh, that, you know, a few little cute things that I uh, grew up with that were related. That's one of the things I love. Like you said, I just thought butter and eggs were normal. I just thought this was normal. I always find it funny when people ask, what was it like to grow up in this situation? What was it like to grow up in this situation? That must have been odd. And it's like, well, no, everyone's everyone's situation is different and all they know is how they grew up. So it's not odd. So I grew up in a family where half of it was Cuban immigrants and my grandparents spoke Spanish. And I remember realizing one day, oh, grandparents can speak English. It's just my family (laughs) where they don't really speak English. In my head, grandparents just had to speak another language until I started meeting other kids' grandparents. (laughs) But anyway, that's enough derailing the conversation. So you grew up in Petaluma in a town that was cow and chicken town, but became a beer town, but you did not partake in the cows and chickens. So what did you do when you were growing up there? What what did that childhood look like other than butter and egg events? Oh, just a lot of uh, playing in the backyard. We we were lucky enough to live near a, uh, a creek that had a little walking path around it. So I spent a lot of time playing around there with some friends of mine. Summers in particular were, were spent outdoors. Both of my parents are English teachers. They had the summers off for the most part. My dad for a little while was teaching summer school, but for the most part we had summers together and uh, my parents were both very into camping. So we would take a few weeks out of every summer to go camping. The summer camp that they sent me to was a backpacking camp. (laughs) Just did a lot of of hiking and swimming. So at some point you transplant over to Los Angeles. Mm -hmm. You follow your current career path. You get involved in caving and these other activities. So what was the path that brought you to these different things? It seems like it was planned, but just kind of fell into it, honestly. My husband and I took a road trip out to Colorado to visit my sister when we first moved down to Los Angeles and we were still trying to figure out if we were going to stay in LA or if we liked it. We stopped in at a little town called Glenwood Springs on the way to see my sister and there were, you know, a couple different things we could do. We could like go to the hot springs or there was this cave on the top of the mountain that did tours and we were like, let's go check out the cave. So we did just a little walking tour of that and it was really fun. And then when we got back, my husband works in film and he was working with this guy named Rob and he happened to mention to Rob that we had done this tour and it was really cool and we might want to do it again. Rob asked if we would be interested to go explore some abandoned mines with him out in Tecopa and we thought, why not? (laughs) Um, Sounds like fun. Uh, So we ran to REI and grabbed some helmets and headlamps and that's about all of the gear that we had at the time. Was that because he told you you should do that or did you have the sense on your own? Oh no, he told We were very new at that time. (laughs) Because knowing to get headlamps, I could see figuring that out. Knowing to get helmets, that's something people often overlook if no one tells them. Yeah, Rob definitely uh, gave us that little tip. But we spent the weekend out exploring some uh, some abandoned mines and just had a blast. And then he told us about the uh, SoCal Grotto um, and that if we wanted to do more of that 
that we should check it out. So I started going to the meetings, and four years later, here we are. You say your husband's in the film industry, so is that what brought you to L.A.? Or did you have a dying need to move to Los Angeles? You know, growing up in Northern California, there's a little bit of a bias against Los Angeles. There's a bias in the entire country against (laughs) Los Angeles. Um, And I I didn't think that I would love it, but I thought it might be uh, an adventure and a, a place where Alex could get a good start in his career. We moved down here and I started looking for grad schools because I thought we're going to go somewhere new, maybe go back to school. And I ended up going to CSU Northridge to study geology, which was probably the best thing that could have happened. Little by little, we started kind of falling in love with L.A. Um, You know, we we visited the desert. We found the San Gabriel Mountains, all the, the parks. Honestly, we're not big beach people. So that didn't quite draw us, but the mountains in the desert um, and even being close to places like San Jacinto, which is almost sort of like the Sierras um, mm-hmm. in atmosphere. So just being able to, to find all of the, the outdoor space was huge for that. And originally, I think we planned on staying here three to five years, and now it's been five years, and I think we're planning to stay for a while longer. I kind of came out here for the same reason. So I was chasing the entertainment industry, and I had no idea about the outdoor activities that would be in the nature that surrounded the city. So I've been here 17 years now and I'm at the point where I go back and forth between I need to get the hell out of here or no, I really like living here and I don't know if I could move Mm -hmm. daily. Yeah. But the thing that's kept me to a certain degree is all the nature around because it really, you sincerely do have almost everything Mm -hmm. you want available to you within driving distance. Yeah. So you, oddly enough, say you're a water person. Yes. You don't really care for the beach. (laughs) Did you grow up near coastal area, near river area? Were you a water kid or did you come to the water later? There's a river that, that runs through Petaluma that's pretty sizable. It is somewhat polluted. And I remember, again, <laughs> growing up thinking that that was normal, that there's just a right. river that nobody goes swimming in. And there's actually been quite a lot of work put into to cleaning that up. Um, but we do we did go out to Point Reyes quite often. So some of the, the Northern California beaches that uh, are a little bit more kind of cliffs and tide pools and it's a little bit more secluded you have to hike out to the to the beaches to get to them so you don't share them with quite so many people so we did go out there maybe a couple of times a year but again mostly mostly mountains so you mentioned joining the grotto and people who've listened to this or people who are in the caving already understand what that is but let's tell those other people because grotto is a term that i still honestly kind of don't understand why it's used in relation to caving clubs so i'll just tell people a little bit about that sure so the socal grotto is a chapter of the National Speleological Society. So it's a national club of people who enjoy caving. Instead of having chapters, we have grottos. So all across the country, we have different grottos. And as far as I understand it, a grotto is like a a meeting place. And so sometimes there are are places within a cave that are called a grotto because it's a large room where you can have many people gather and and enjoy the cave. From what I understand, that's where it comes from, but I actually have never looked it up, so I'm not sure. (laughs) Yeah, we have uh, the, the Southern California Grotto that meets in Pasadena once a month and it's actually an incredibly active group considering that there aren't really any caves in LA. (laughs) Um, The closest ones that are 
really worth going to are, are a couple hour drive away. We have a, a few small uh, spots around here where like you can see the whole cave from the outside looking in and those are fun to poke into but uh, most of the time we have to we have to drive a fair distance for that which is part of actually why I got into canyoneering because it uses a lot of the same tools and a lot of the same skills and it's right here in the San Gabriel Mountains and it's something that we can do after work. So. And there's a lot more opportunity for water there. There is, yes. <laughs> or at least less deadly well, yeah. potentially less deadly opportunity for water. A lot of caves are formed through water and many of them have water in it. I do cave and I do scuba dive. I do not cave dive. Uh, I don't think I will ever cave dive. <laughs> but, you know, caving with a little bit of water in it is a lot of fun. So I've heard cave diving referred to as the most dangerous sport, though base jump and cave diving who knows maybe there's right. a I think they keep up. going back and forth <laughs> yeah. yeah both uh, likely to end in tragedy at some point yeah so you join this grotto and much like everyone I know in LA who's a caver you mentioned how there are no caves nearby <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and you eventually transfer into canyoneering let's talk a bit about how you came across that I know you mentioned because there weren't caves nearby, you got into canyoneering, mm-hmm. but let's let's delve into that a little deeper. Well, um, it was actually Dev Angel, who has, I believe, been on your show a couple mm-hmm. of times now. Devantilist. <laughs> yes. <laughs> I love that story. <laughs> um, he was uh, the chair of the SoCal Grotto when I first started, and, and he was a big reason of why I got involved so quickly in, in caving. He invited me on quite a few trips, and um, he was running weekly after-work canyon trips just to, you know— get a hike in and use our skills a little bit, practice and stuff. And so he, he invited me out into, I think Rubio was my first canyon. And of course, since then, done many others, LSA and San Antonio and uh, Josephine. Got into it through my caver friends. And I, I've gone to a few of the larger like canyoneering community events, and, and I'm trying to break into that a bit more. There's just always so much going on. It's hard to pick which events to go to. Yeah, that's definitely the problem that I struggle with as well, is I like a lot of different things and mm-hmm. I want to do all of them yeah. <laughs> but you can't get good at any of them if you do all of them yeah yeah I struggle with that a lot <laughs> <laughs> so we've talked about two activities that have a fair amount of rope work but you also mentioned scuba diving which has no rope work but involves water which is mm-hmm. the thing you love but <laughs> also you don't care for the ocean right. <laughs> which is where most people go scuba diving yes. so let's discuss did you get into scuba diving because you're interested in it, or does this link back to your work? Actually, neither. I got <laughs> into it because my husband really wanted to get certified, um, and I, I've talked to a few instructors, and they all say that that is their nightmare, is when somebody gets into scuba diving because their partner does. I got lucky with it because the first time I went, uh, particularly out in Catalina, um, I did fall in love with it. Um, just being able to see all of the, the life that's out there, um, the diversity that's out there, and and getting up close and personal with species that through my work I am trying to help protect was was huge. Some people ask why I'm into it because I'm not a beach person, boats are fun, but I also hate being cold. Yeah, so um, you're definitely in the correct ocean. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> uh, we've gone diving out in uh, Hawaii during a family trip, and, and we mentioned to our instructor that most of our diving has been in California, and, and he looked at us and he said, oh, I'm very sorry, because it gets so cold out here. Again, it's just this incredible experience of being someplace where humans aren't really supposed to be, yeah, but getting totally to experience that Yeah, it's totally not intended life. for us to survive Mm-mm. in those conditions at all. No. 
No, and I again, I, I'm not sure that, that we'll ever get into anything like cave diving, but we have gotten our um, advanced certification. Our next plan is to do the rescue course, because um, usually whenever we get into a hobby, we like to take a course or two in, in rescue and that just, just to have the information. Or you can do like I do and take the rescue course for this, forget everything you learned feel obligated to take it again, mm-hmm. wonder why you still didn't retain any yeah. of it, consider taking it a third time. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's definitely happened with uh, with cave rescue stuff. If, if you don't practice it, it's gone. And when when do you practice it? I mean, cavers are very good. They have grotto meetings, they, they, have, yeah. they have practices. Mm-hmm. I feel like no other activity does this to the same yeah. degree. Through the grotto, we do a lot of rope practices. We don't do a lot of rescue practice, and that's actually something we're trying to do more of. We've got actually a, a good handful of people now that have some some rescue training under their belt and I think now we've got a little bit more momentum to do like an advanced rope practice every once in a while where we work on some of those rescue techniques but it's tough to get that in. So it sounds like you got your dive certification or did your certification dives at Catalina? Yes. Was it at Two Harbors area? Uh, no, we did it at the dive park at Avalon. Okay. So beach entry then or um, boat So they've entry? got the those uh, stairs at the dive okay. park there so it's uh, it's quote-unquote beach diving, but so much nicer. Did you do a PADI cert or yeah. one of the other? Yes. Yeah, so I, I did the same. I did a PADI certification and I got my certification dives in Catalina, mm-hmm. uh, but we were off a boat over near Two Harbors. I've still yet to have a successful beach entry, but I hear the Avalon beach entry is a very easy one, it unlike is. everyone I've ever tried. Yeah. So talk a bit about your certification because... From what I remember, for me, it was kind of a surreal experience. Mm-hmm. And knowing how like low visibility is and how weird kelp forests are, it's also a unique experience to diving, mm-hmm. diving here in the Channel Islands regions. Yeah, so my, my first dive outside of a pool was at the Avalon Dive Park, and we actually had like perfect visibility. Um, it so was 20 gorgeous. Feet. <laughs> <laughs> More than that, I, probably like 40, honestly, that day. It was it was beautiful. Um, it was November, and I feel like in the winter time you actually get a little better visibility because you don't have the algal growth um, quite as much in the winter time. We saw eels and giant sea bass and giant lobsters and all sorts of things, and it was, it was perfect conditions, and I was like, we should do this all the time. And then about a year later, we did a a, an actual beach dive at Escondido with Jerry Nicholsberg, um, yeah, who yeah, I also yeah. think mm-hmm. has been on this show. And he uh, he took us out for a beach dive. That was my first real beach dive. I don't really consider Avalon beach diving because you don't have to deal with the sand and you don't really you have, have to, to worry about like surf, timing right? with the waves yeah. and stuff. So we went out and that was a day when there was quite a bit of surge and there's a lot of silt at Escondido. So you could not see your hand directly in front of your face. And it took me three tries to get down because I was panicking a little bit. And I ended up spending the entire time holding on to the uh, BCD of my husband and just kind of swimming along. And as long as I could feel him, I knew he was there, but I couldn't see him. So that was a very surreal experience for me, just not being able to see anything. And you'd be swimming along and a fish would suddenly pop up right in front (laughs) of your face and swim along. So that I think that was a really good experience. It was actually quite funny because we, we used to rent gear before we bought our own from uh, Hollywood Divers here in North Hollywood. 
And uh, one of the guys that runs the place was talking to us afterwards, and we told him that visibility was really low. And, and he said, oh, okay, so you're just diving for the privilege of breathing underwater. <laughs> yep, that's that's about right. To a certain point, that's kind of what you need to do mm-hmm. if you, if you want to get comfortable in that environment and you live out here. Yeah. The one thing I did find very interesting was the kelp forest because it is sincerely like you're diving in an underwater forest. Mm-hmm. And then when I first went elsewhere, like other than that, I've been diving in Mexico, Belize, and Hawaii. It is a totally different experience because one, the visibility is so much wider, but then also there's nothing around you. Mm -hmm. So it's like expansive. I I can't decide which is better. The kelp forest is kind of super interesting because it feels like you're swimming through a forest. Do you have a preference or do you have thoughts on, on those different environments? I hadn't really thought about it. I, I've also been diving in, in Belize and Hawaii, um, never in, in Mexico. I mean, diving in Belize was incredible because of the visibility. And also there were quite a few sharks and I love sharks. And oh, that was nice. very exciting. But I, I think I think the kelp forest is is a lot of fun for me. And part of that is because it's, it's sort of a, a surprise because you're going through this forest and you go around a, a little piece of kelp and suddenly there's a big school of fish or something that's been hiding there. And, and you have to sort of navigate the... The, the kelp forest and it feels a little bit more like you're you're one of the creatures like you know trying to make its way through the little kelp forest so I think I think I would prefer that so when you went to Hawaii which part were you diving in or which um, island we were on Maui is it called Malakai Crater we'll say yes for, we'll for say, someone can let us know if we're wrong but <laughs> yeah. that sounds correct yeah so it's uh, just off the the west side of of Maui and we we did get one day of diving in um which was a lot of fun I think the the most fun part was that Alex has a a, a little brother who really wanted to go diving and he's 13 now um so we were able to bring him out for one of those adventure scuba experiences where he gets sort of a crash course and then he can go diving with us and um and so he was able to join us for a dive and we saw like an octopus which is something that like you very rarely see when diving and um so it was just a really cool experience being able to go with with somebody for the first time and and see their experience when i was diving in hawaii we were in kona on the big island and i imagine the conditions are pretty similar but they also have that manta ray night dive in kona do they have anything similar to that in maui we didn't uh, do any night diving in maui there might have been opportunities to so calling it a night dive if, if you could see me right now, I'm going to do the finger quotations thing yeah. because it's a night dive only in the sense that you do it at night, mm-hmm. but you don't really swim. So hmm. they bring a bunch of boats out. They turn a bunch of lights on. They put a huge light at the bottom of the ocean floor, like 15, 20 feet down, however, okay. however deep it is, I forget. And this attracts plankton. And then you swim down and you kneel on the, on the uh, sea floor for like 45 minutes. Huh. And during that time, the uh, manta rays come to eat the plankton and they swim all around you and they make you take your snorkel off because they also give you a dive light and they Mm -hmm. tell you if you shine it above your head, the manta rays will swim directly above you. And they will even brush like against your forehead (laughs) and things as they swim past. While it's not like any other dive experience because you need almost no skill to be able to do it other than just knowing very bare basics. Mm It is a super cool experience because of how close you get to the sea life. So you're not getting manta rays where you were, but you were getting octopus, were you getting turtles turtles. and various other things? Yeah, I mean, many different kinds of of colorful fish. We did see some some turtles uh, 
particularly closer to the 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 mainland of the island we for the first dive we were pretty far off and so that was mostly just fish but still pretty spectacular yeah do you find yourself more interested in the sea life or in the environment or is it a mix probably the sea life it sort of depends. I think it, at Catalina, there's a lot of really interesting plant growth there as well. And so that, you know, even if you don't see much in the way of sea life, there's still a lot to see and a lot of interesting colors. Generally, uh, I, I get excited to see the fishies. So you got into diving because your husband wanted to get into diving. And it sounded like you weren't particularly interested in it, but you've gotten interested in it enough that you've done these multiple dives. You've gone back to get your advanced certification, Mm -hmm. which is something I don't have. You're talking about doing rescue Mm -hmm. certification. So what is the thing that surprised you about diving for you? To start with, I I was sort of expecting to have that that panic moment when you first take a breath underwater. Um, I I know a lot of people had sort of warned me of that. Um, And, you know, of course you start in the pool and so the surface is five feet above your head. But even when we were in Catalina, I never had that moment the first time I really had a, a panic moment when scuba diving was at Escondido when the visibility was so low just feeling as comfortable as I felt in a situation that I thought was going to feel very unnatural was I think comforting as I mentioned I hate being cold but when there's <laughs> enough to look at you sort of get distracted from that so um, we went scuba diving up in Monterey this August and that's even colder than it is down here and I've been diving there before and it was miserable but we found one reef that has clamshells that were feeding and so they would send out little like fans and like grab whatever and then pull it back in and I could just distract myself watching that for five minutes while Alex was looking at other things and I kind of forget how cold I was because it was so much fun to watch. So where did you do your deep dive? Because if you hate being cold, it only gets colder the deeper you go. <laughs> yeah. Um, we did our deep dive at Avalon. Um, so we went down to the bottom of the Sujak, which is at about 90 feet. And then if you go a little bit further, you get down to 100. And I think that was our uh, our official deep dive. But we've done a couple of other uh, deep dives at some uh, wrecks. Uh, if you go offshore a little bit from the Avalon Dive Park, there's a, um, a a wreck there that I think starts at 90 feet. Um, so we've done a couple of dives there as well. So did you have any of the difficulties that can come with deep diving? The any issues with like sinus pressure, any mm-hmm. nitrogen narcosis, any of that? I don't think so. I never noticed anything odd at, at depth. I've definitely been diving where I was uh, a, a little bit sick. And I, again, they recommend against that. Um, but when we were in Belize, I, I had a little bit of an ear infection and I wasn't going to not dive in Belize. So we, we went and it was painful, even though we were only down at like 40 or 50 feet. But yeah, at, at depth, I, I haven't necessarily noticed anything dramatic but we usually take it pretty slow on our way down and our way back up so i have generally terrible sinuses just in general Mm -hmm. something i inherited from my father thankfully and i forget if it was mexico or belize but the the group took us down to 80 feet which technically we are we are not certified for but Mm -hmm. we went it was was, they also brought us through like a tunnel which technically we weren't Mm -hmm. supposed to swim through but it was cool it was great i could feel a lot of pressure but it wasn't too uncomfortable. But when I surfaced, my entire sinuses emptied uh, into yeah. my mask immediately. Yeah. <laughs> so, so I do wonder like how I would handle deep dives mm-hmm. in general. I also tend to suck through my air really quickly. I think yeah. because of 
breathing issues in general. Yeah, I'm getting I'm getting better at that. But uh, again, we, we go diving with with our friend Jerry a lot, and he's been diving for I don't even know how long. He was our instructor when we got uh, our advanced certification. You're still talking about Nicholsburg. Nicholsburg, yeah. And so he, he was your instructor. He was our instructor. Oh um, he's God. a great instructor. I'd recommend him to anybody. <laughs> um, but he he sips air, man. Like we will be okay. We're at 500. Time to surface, and he's like, I still have like 2,000, and we're like, all right, well. <laughs> he he also by choice puts on dive gear and then jumps into whitewater rivers and mm-hmm. then just rides along. Mm-hmm. Yeah, he collects uh, <laughs> uh, old bottles. Um, he's actually invited us to go up to, uh, I think it's part of the Sacramento River, where he'll he'll go and and just feel around on the bottom and find old bottles because I guess people used to just toss bottles into the river. He's invited us to go and he's like, yeah, you just have to like be really careful because the, the current is really strong. And I'm like, mm, maybe. <laughs> yeah. And he's just a little unassuming guy. Oh, yeah. But uh, no, he's, he's a pretty tough dude. So he's also a member of the Grotto. So did you do the diving first or did you cave first? We, we met him through caving. Did he offer then to teach you scuba diving? We got our original um, certification uh, just through a, a local guy actually here in North Hollywood. So we, we were certified before we um, got to know Jerry pretty well. And then through... Uh, caving and canyoneering, we became pretty close friends with Jerry, and and then when it came time to do our advanced, he he offered and took him up on it, and had a really fun weekend out at Catalina with him. It was actually so for uh, advanced, you have to choose some like elective courses to take, and oh, yeah, um, yeah, one right. of them that we decided to do was uh, search and recovery. But we were doing our certification on uh, Easter weekend, and Jerry actually got plastic Easter eggs and taped them to weights and like put them out around the dive park for us so that we would dive and do our little Easter egg hunt and collect them all up. So he made it fun. <laughs> I've heard also that there are groups that'll do like undersea pumpkin carving for I've seen that, uh, yeah. I haven't yeah. done it, but I've, I have seen people out there, which is quite impressive. And I know that, you know, fish will eat that up, so it's not like you're putting anything in there that's bad. Yeah, divers like to do weird things. Cavers like to do weird things. You, yep. you join the two, the weird people groups. Yeah, we, we fit in well there. <laughs> so caving, this is not a thing that you grew up doing, mm. but you got introduced to it. Yeah. There are a lot of things about caving that freak people out. Mm-hmm. Did you suffer from any of those things? Or are you just naturally one of those people that's comfortable squeezing in tight spaces and hanging out in dark, musty places? Yeah, I, I love it. I love all of it. <laughs> it actually was sort of a surprise to me because when I first got into caving is when I started uh, grad school and I was studying geology and I kept inviting all of my geology friends out to cave and none of them seemed interested. And, and in my head, geology and caving went hand in hand because you get to see the world from inside. But it does take a, a an interesting kind of person to want to go underground and squeeze into tight places and, and go where where it's dark and, and quiet and scary. But I've never really had any issue with it. The only times that I've ever been a, a little bit freaked out is, is squeezing into very tight places when it's um, a very long squeeze. Mm-hmm. Um, if it's short and I can see the other side of it, it's not a big deal. But there is a, um, a lead in a cave recently where you sort of have to like shimmy sideways through a squeeze and then at the end of that it does this like hairpin turn um we won't, there's only been one person small enough to to fit into that space uh and I, that was not me um but I, I did manage to get like the front half of my body around the curve 
and then having to like shimmy backwards out of that um, took a, a while and, and you know I, it wasn't too bad but it, it, it gets you thinking like if there if I was here by myself I could get in trouble which is why you never cave by yourself but. yeah they, like I think caves are amazing and then I've been through a few caves but it is the squeezes that keep me out like claustrophobia is uh, my thing I can deal with any number of other things. Mm-hmm claustrophobia I have not been able to surmount and as soon as I feel like there's some sort of paralysis or like my body's going to be pinned I have a really hard time fighting that panic response yeah I mean I think it takes some practice you know you don't go straight for the the tightest squeeze that you could possibly do you kind of you know you start with something that you have to crawl through and then get smaller and smaller and kind of see where your limits at but there's also quite a few caves that don't involve any squeezes at all, and there's a lot of people in our grotto who, who prefer to go to those types of caves, so it's a preference. Jerry always tells me that I should join the grotto, and then I tell him I hate tight spaces, mm-hmm. and then he says, oh, but that's okay, half of the club hates tight spaces. Mm-hmm. He's like, half of the club is afraid of tight spaces, half of the club is afraid of the vertical stuff, <laughs> so you'll fit in perfect because you'll be yeah. great in the vertical stuff. Exactly, yeah. <laughs> Do you like both? I do like so both. So you're one of the ones that crosses over mm-hmm, and does mm-hmm. both. I'm happy to do both. Although, to be honest, I, there's there's certain things that, that I don't love because the, the grotto is part of National Speleolog- Speleological Society, which is kind of cave-specific, but with the, the group as large as, as we have... There's a lot of of crossover between sort of adventure groups. So we do have you know the the cavers who also canyoneer. We've got the cavers who also do mine exploring. And of course, mine exploring is how I got into this. But I actually don't like it as much. I don't feel quite as safe in an uh, abandoned mine as I do in an under uh, in a natural cave. So there, there are certain situations. Own, it brings its own dangers, also, yeah. right? Yeah. yeah, yeah. It's a it's a bit more. Um, uh, unstable. Um, there's some out by Tacopa where you might like stumble across some old dynamite, which <laughs> you just kind of skirt around it. But uh, certain things like that that are fun, but I really only enjoy it maybe once a year. There's also potential dangers for gas pockets, right? In, in yes, yeah, bad air is. I mean, that can happen in caves as well. And um, it's, it is smart to bring uh, air sensors with you if you're going someplace new. But yeah, there's definitely a risk of that in mines. So what do you think you get out of caves? that you don't get out of other sports. I've actually had had this sort of experience in in some canyons as well, but I think caving is about as close as I get to having a spiritual experience. Um, I'm not religious or spiritual, but there's something about being underground where you get a, a little bit of sensory deprivation if you get into a, a, a quiet tight space and you know you're waiting for the person behind you to catch up and you turn off your light and it's complete darkness and if you've got some like water running it's kind of nice ambiance um, but there's also like this experience of you can feel like the rock around you taking heat out of your hand so it's this sort of exchange of energy that has nothing to do with like magic or spiritual anything but it's just a actual physical transfer of energy from you to the rock and it heals your chakras right sure (laughs) (laughs) it does calm me down and it's also one of those things where you really have to be paying attention to everything around you so when you're when i'm caving I kind of forget about anything else that's going on in my life. You know, if, if there's stress at work or, you know, family stuff, whatever's going on, 
it, it just sort of disappears for a little while while you're navigating a cave, and I really enjoy that. So something I find interesting is one of the two hobbies we've spoke the most about so far are also the ones that are the least like everyday life. They're, mm-hmm. they're almost like alien worlds. Mm-hmm. So you're under the ocean. The plant life, the animal life is totally different than anything on the surface. Yeah. You can't breathe there, so it's almost like you're an astronaut or something floating you 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 know you're instead of being able to walk you float you mm-hmm. swim and then caves are the same thing minus the minus the floating yeah <laughs> and with the added darkness mm-hmm. totally different creatures totally different environments yeah. unlike anything you'd see above the surface mm-hmm. but you also like canyoneering yes. which has its own exploratory aspect but it is on and within the surface mm-hmm. and it has its own animals and 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 everything as well but it's not as alien mm-hmm. alien as those those two environments so what do you think you get from it that you don't get from the other two. I mean, scuba diving and caving are fun, but I, th- I think if I just want to like have a fun day outdoors, I go with canyoneering. You know, scuba diving, I'm cold for the day. Uh, caving, you're underground. Canyoneering, you get the sunshine, which I also enjoy. You know, I, I, I like being warm. Um, so so getting out into some place where you do have sunshine is, is really nice. But it's also like just a, another way to test a lot of the skills with caving like there is vertical involved but most of the time it's like a little bit of vertical to get into the cave and then you're kind of crawling and walking around um, but in canyoneering there's there's so many different ways to you know set up an anchor and so many different ways to you know different repel devices and all these sorts of things and you get to sort of play around with all of those when you go through a canyon and especially one like LSA where it's you know a relatively straightforward canyon but there's a good 10 repels you can sort of mess around and do a different you know anchor style at every single one so I think it's 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 fun and I get to play around with all the toys which I think is really exciting Um, and it's a really good chance to just get out with a group of friends and do something fun for a day but I think there's also the the exploration part of it you know in in the San Gabriel Mountains those are pretty well traveled but even so it's not a place that most Angelinos have been to Um, and then if you get in with Scott Sweeney and get to go into a canyon (laughs) for the first time that's very uh, adventurous. Do you have a preference especially you mentioned Scott Sweeney so I'm curious (laughs) to hear your answer is do you have a preference over dry or wet for Mm. canyons? No. They're, they're fun in different ways. I, I haven't really ventured too far into the, the heavy Class C stuff yet. I've done uh, upper jump and, and teacups, so ones that have water, but um, mostly doing them during lower flow times. Um, and then, you know, Death Valley that are completely dry. They've got different obstacles and... No, no, no preference. I just, I wouldn't, I wouldn't want to do one or the other. I like doing them both. So, so this is the thing that's kind of interesting so far is when we started this, you said how you love water and everything <laughs> to do with water. Then we talked about how you don't really care for the ocean, but you like scuba diving uh-huh. in the ocean. Yeah. And we've talked about you, you, you have a. You don't have a preference, but you like dry canyoneering. Mm-hmm. You grew up with a polluted river, so maybe <laughs> maybe it was limited. But did you get into water sports at all? Are you a kayaker or paddler of any type? Were you on the swim team? Did I'm 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 looking to find where this alleged love of water was. Uh, well, for the most part, uh, when I'd go camping with my family, um, our, our main thing was we would camp by uh, Lake Siskiyou, which is um, right near Mount Shasta. And most days was either swimming at the beach or usually once a summer we would rent one of those like 
party barge things and we'd have the whole family on it. Um, we did do some kayaking with my mom. Um, nothing like whitewater kayaking or anything, just on the lake. And then if we did go on a hike, it was usually to a lake, especially when you're a kid. Even like a couple mile hike can seem really long. And so seeing that lake at the end of a hike and like running and jumping and swimming and having fun with your sisters and cousins was that was that was the destination. And so it was always like the exciting thing when you finally came to the lake. Maybe that was part of it. (laughs) (laughs) I think that some of your love of water is theoretical. It is about how the water controls and modifies the landscape. That's That's part of what you like about it so much. So let's segue since I've mentioned that, into your career path sure. and what that looks like and what you do. This is another thing that now now that I have a, a career that I really love and looking back on how I got there, again, it, it seems very planned. And again, it was just something that I fell into. I, uh, I started in undergrad actually as an astrophysics major and because of all the water because <laughs> of all the, the water <laughs> in the universe uh, no I, I liked you know stargazing and I was okay at math so but it was a little bit too theoretical and I was sort of having my mind blown every day by the craziness of astrophysics which was amazing but um, I ended up kind of shifting back a little bit to planetary science which brings it like a little bit closer to home and a couple of the classes that I had to take for that were geology classes and those really resonated with me so when it was time to go back to grad school I ended up going into geology specifically so my my area of study was in China in an area that is completely arid no water Um, it's mudstones and gypsum but I did take a couple of classes in uh, environmental hydrogeology which is how water interacts with land really got interested in that Um, and I did have um, actually a couple of different internships with the regional water quality control board which is kind of a regulatory government office that looks at water quality and and regulates water quality. Between what I learned in those environmental hydrogeology classes and what I got from those internships, I just kind of got funneled towards more water-specific things. Part of what I wanted to do was a little bit more community outreach and bringing it back to Jerry Nicholsburg. Um, He happened to know somebody who worked at Heal the Bay, and he he recommended that I look at their job board. Um, And the position that that opened up first that appealed to me was water quality scientist, which has very little to do with geology. Um, It's actually more about, like, chemistry of of water. But the more I got into it, the more interesting it was. And in a place like Los Angeles, where water is so incredibly vital, it just ended up being exactly where I needed to be. All right, so tell people what Heal the Bay is, and... I think there's going to be a bit of irony that it involves the ocean. <laughs> yeah, so Heal the Bay is an environmental nonprofit. Uh, it's been around for about 30 years. And at first, it was just one woman in her garage um, getting some local community members rallied up about the um, Hyperion wastewater treatment facility because uh, they had a waiver to dump their effluent into the Santa Monica Bay, but they only had to treat it to a certain level before they discharged it. And there was actually quite a lot of um, bacteria still in that water, and it was causing people who were going to that beach to get sick because of the, the bacteria and the pathogens that were in that uh, in that effluent. Um, so they rallied and got the, the EPA to take away that waiver, and that has created a much safer space for people to swim and surf out in the Santa Monica Bay. And then beyond that one discharge location, 
sanitation, there's quite a lot of sources of, of pollution into the water bodies and, and the ocean here in Los Angeles. And so Heal the Bay grew, and now we've got probably about 30 staffers. Um, we even own the, the little aquarium underneath the Santa Monica Pier, which is um, a huge spot for education and outreach, particularly for uh, school kids. And uh, we're really just out there trying to educate people. Um, we do a lot of beach cleanup uh, events to, again, educate people and also to, to give people a uh, a call to action, you know, go out and, and collect the, the trash off of the beach before it gets in the into the ocean. But we've even branched into a lot of advocacy work. Um, so a lot of the work that I do is with the Regional Water Quality Control Board that I used to work for. So I've got some, you know, connections there and making sure that policy and um, regulatory framework is is strong enough to actually protect our waters. And we also do work on the state level. We're trying to pass some uh, legislation that will create a more circular economy so that we reduce the amount of plastic in our environment. So we actually do a lot in many different areas now that we've got a larger staff. So what are some of the things you learned or found out about once you joined Heal the Bay that you think people should know about? Well, I'm a little bit biased there because a lot of the work that I do has to do with stormwater. Um, and there's quite a lot of data out there that shows that stormwater is a very large source of pollution into our waterways. Um, and a lot of people think, you know, it doesn't really rain in Los Angeles. It does, of course. Um, there's some years where we only get four inches of rain, but then there's years like last year where we got 19. What that does is basically any pollutant that uh, ends up on our sidewalks or our streets, um, anything that settles, any dog poop that somebody doesn't pick up, that all, when it rains, get gets washed directly into our storm drain system. In Los Angeles, we have a separate system for our storm drain system versus our sewage system. Um, and there's other parts of the countries that have a combined system where they, they both uh, go into the same system. But when you have a really large storm and you have storm water flowing into your sewage system, that can actually cause sewage spills. I, I am really glad that we have a separate system here. But it does mean that wastewater goes to a treatment facility, gets cleaned up, then gets discharged into the rivers, whereas the stormwater goes directly into the rivers and then out to the ocean. And so that's why, you know, Heal the Bay recommends that people wait three days after a rainstorm to go swimming um, or to come in contact with the ocean water or the river water at all. And in a place like Los Angeles where you can have a rainstorm one day and then the next day it can be like sunny and 85 and, you know, people are like, it's a great beach day, but if it rained yesterday, it's not a great beach day. Are you basically just need to wait until all of that has been diluted and then spread out into the ocean? Yeah, so the, the best estimate is, is three days because of how long it takes for bacteria and pathogens to break down. Um, if they're uh, out in the open and are in contact with UV radiation, um, it breaks down a little bit faster. So if it's, if it's not exposed to, to sunlight, it might take a little bit longer than three days. But once the water gets out to the ocean, it does dilute a little bit, of course, and then it gives it the time it needs to break down and then the, the pathogens aren't uh, as dangerous anymore. So why should people care about Heal the Bay? In Los Angeles, water is incredibly important. You know, our, our beaches are world-renowned. People come from everywhere to, to visit beaches, and um, we want to make sure that they are safe. But even if you come inland here, there's a couple of spots along the L.A. River that are now recreational zones where people can go kayaking. Um, there's quite a few people in Los Angeles who are actually uh, subsistence fishers, so they, like, 
the main protein for their family comes from going to the LA River or out to the piers to fish for, for their food and making sure that those environments are healthy enough that we can enjoy all of that um, and stay safe is really important. But also in general, water connects all of our uh, ecosystems. So here in Los Angeles, more and more we're seeing a lot of environment within our kind of urban sprawl. Um, there's a lot of small park parks that are popping up. Um, there's a big push to get more connectivity between those parks. So you've got more biodiversity, but water is important for all of that. If we have healthy water, we'll have healthier ecosystems. And if our environment is healthier, it's easier for communities to be healthy. So I think it's, it's all really connected to our health and also recreational opportunities, you know, quality of life, having uh, a place where you can go to the LA River to go kayaking with your friends for a day and not have to worry about getting sick afterwards, I think uh, is a great opportunity for, for everybody in Los Angeles. And our hope is that eventually, maybe someday, all of the Los Angeles River can be a recreational zone and so that will bring nature closer to more of the people who don't have that opportunity because I can get up into the San Gabriel Mountains any day but there are people who you know maybe don't have a car so they can't get up into the San Gabriel Mountains. We meet a lot of students who have never seen the ocean like they live in Los Angeles but you know the first time they see the ocean is when they come out for a school event to see the aquarium and so just having more opportunities for people to connect with nature in their own home. I think it's great. So what are some things people listening can do that are low impact on their life, but collectively have a high impact on helping organizations like Heal the Bay accomplish their goals? I mean, there's a lot of opportunities to volunteer with Heal the Bay. Um, and of course, there's many other great environmental organizations that they can hook up with. There's uh, Tree People here in North Hollywood area. Pacoima Beautiful is really active. Um, but for Heal the Bay in particular, you know, we, we do beach cleanup events, so you can come and help us clean up the trash off beaches. But there's other uh, opportunities as well. So you can volunteer at the aquarium, you know, come out once a week. And, and hang out at the aquarium. We have a, a speakers bureau program where we have volunteers go out to schools and give talks about you know water quality and about environmental health. So that's a great way to educate the next generation. And then we also have a really cool program called the MPA Watch program. So that's kind of connected with the, the state government, but there's these uh, marine protected areas all around, along California. Um, and these are areas where uh, there's not supposed to be any take. So you're not supposed to be fishing or taking, you you know, any sort of wildlife out of there. And we have to monitor that. So we actually have a volunteer program where you literally just go to the beach and hang out and like take notes of what you see. Like, oh, there's a group of people fishing here. They shouldn't be doing that. Or there's a bunch of people recreating here. And so clearly like this is a good spot for, for maintaining this M uh, MPA so that we can have more recreational opportunities. Um, so there's a lot of ways to, to, to volunteer through Heal the Bay. But I think in general, like one of those, if you see a piece of trash, pick it up super easy. Yeah, even if it's not your own trash. Even if it's, it's not, not your own trash, you. absolutely. And just, you know, ha having conversations with people about how important having a healthy environment is. And so one of the things I think you probably have to overcome pretty regularly mm -hmm. is groups like Heal the Bay, some people will think, oh, this is just another regulatory group trying mm -hmm. to force me to do things or trying to take away my freedoms or this and that and the other. Mm -hmm. What do you have to say about that? I haven't come across that too much, honestly. Okay, um, well that is good. People, people <laughs> tend to 
to, to Lake Hill the Bay, and, and we're, we're more of a watchdog than a regulatory group, and uh, you know, we, we see ourselves as sort of a connection between um, what's going on in the regulatory world and the public. So we really just want people to be aware of and engaged in some of the water quality issues that are going on. But for those who do feel like you know we're, we're looking over their shoulder and, and you know, we're trying to, to get them to do something that's going to cost a lot of money, we work with a lot of permittees and, and we understand that in order to clean up water or to reduce pollution, no matter what's going on, it's going to cost money. Uh, you know, if, if you have volunteers to go pick up trash, that's one way to go. But, you know, if you're looking at some of the contaminants that are harder to get at, like copper or zinc, like how do you take that out of water? Those sorts of things are always going to cost money. And so we do sit down with permittees and we talk to them and figure out, like, how can we approach this together? Um, and a big win, I think, on that front was in 2018, the voters of LA passed um, Measure W, which is the Safe Clean Water Program, and that's created a new funding source for stormwater capture projects. And that was sort of a, a joint effort. There were quite a few cities that backed that measure. Um, Heal the Bay, along with a lot of other um, environmental groups in Los Angeles, backed it. And part of it was was recognizing the fact that, like, in order to cre- to fix this problem, we need money for it, and we can't just expect cities to come up with that money. So together we came up with, you know, this the Safe Clean Water Program um, that has provided some funding and, and created a, a solution to the problem. How long have you said Hilda Bay's been around? It's been about 30 years now. So about 30 years. Yeah. What are some of the improvements that have happened in those 30 years? What were things like before versus now? Yeah, so I think the, the biggest improvement has been in uh, dry weather bacteria issues. So again, you know, originally we had a little bit more flexibility on what we could discharge in. Into, into the rivers and into the ocean. Um, and so even during dry weather, when you don't have the stormwater problem, um, we had high levels of bacteria in our water. And I, I think it's the Santa Monica Bay Restoration Commission or the Bay Foundation, one of them, um, actually looked at our data and have seen um, an improvement in dry weather bacteria concentrations. And so just bringing the public into the conversation and having public pressure to fix this problem um, has actually shown some improvements in the data. We also, so we we are a science-based group, and so um, when we do beach cleanups, we actually take account of, you know, how many plastic bags are we picking up? How many pieces of microplastic are we picking up? You know, we, we keep track of those things, um, partially for, for the purpose of uh, advocating for stricter rules against them. We were able to determine that once the uh, the ban on plastic bags was put in a couple of years ago, we saw a dramatic decline in how many plastic bags we were finding on the beach. Even though there are still many challenges to, to, to tackle, we have been able to make some significant changes when it comes to environmental health when, you know, getting some of the plastic out of there, getting some of the bacteria out of there. Um, Stormwater even is, you know, we're, we're, we're working towards some solutions with that. It's going to take some time, but we're working towards it. What's the feedback like that you've gotten from the community in the time you've been there? Uh, it's been kind of mixed, um, honestly, and I think the the key really is getting the community involved very early, because um, most community members, like, even if they're against a project, they will say, we need clean beaches, we need to clean up our environment, we need to do this. So 
there's a lot of support, I think, for the, the general movement towards cleaning up our environment. Um, I think that sometimes if a project is being put in and there isn't community support, part of that could come from just not having involved the community in the development of the project. And that's actually something that, that we're working more on. It's, it's difficult when you have kind of a smaller organization that's covering pretty much all of uh, Los Angeles County. But we partner with other community-based groups to get community members into the conversation right at the beginning of a project that is being built. Because then they have say in what the project looks like, where it's going to be put, and they can kind of have a sense of ownership over that project. Um, and I, I've found that when projects do that early on, that the feedback from the community is is great. You know, they, they, have, they have ownership, they love the project, they want to see it succeed. We're going to go ahead and start wrapping up. If people want to know more about Heal the Bay, where mm-hmm. do they go for that? But then also, where do they go for you if you want to share anything about yourself with people sure. online? Everything that you would want to know can be found on uh, healthebay.org. Um, any volunteer opportunities, any job opportunities. We've got a blog, um, so we kind of try to keep everybody up to date on the latest issues when it comes to water quality. Yeah, so that's all at healthebay.org. If you want to know more about me and caving and cannoneering and scuba diving and all those sorts of things, I am on Facebook um, as ECMO. It's capital E, capital C. And last name. That's about all I'm on. Um, I don't have the energy for other <laughs> social medias. But yeah, anybody's welcome to, to reach out to me there. And, and I, I really do enjoy uh, introducing sports to, to people for the first time. So if anybody wants to get into these sorts of sports, they're welcome to reach out. And the way I always end this, and you probably know, is do you have a final thought for people that involves anything we've talked about so far? Yeah. So I was thinking about this because I know you do always ask this. Um, <laughs> and I think it's just reminding people that, you know, we, we are part of the environment. Um, we, we always think of, you know, I'm going to go visit Yosemite. I'm going to go see the desert. I'm going to go visit nature. But really, nature is is all around us. Even when there there isn't a park nearby, you might see like a, a, a bird of prey or, or, you know, some animal running around. And, and really, it is just that, you know, we are part of the environment. And if we trash our environment, we're ultimately just hurting ourselves. And if we help to clean it up, that's ultimately going to help us as well. Yep, I like that. We are all part of nature. We are not separate from it. Mm -hmm. Thank you for meeting me for this. Yeah, thanks, Jason. And now it's that time in the show where I ask you to scurry off to our website, gogetoutside.com. Look for this, episode 94 with E.C. and there you will find a variety of photographs of her in action and numerous links, links to her Facebook page, but also several links for those of you who are interested in getting into caving or are interested in helping out or being more informed about Heal the Bay. If you are interested in joining the SoCal Grotto, they meet on the first Tuesday of every month at Caltech in Pasadena, and they are currently planning their activities for this year, this year being 2020. They also host monthly rope training and a variety of caving trips that are open to members. So if you head to the website, you can find links to the SoCal Grotto. And if you are not in the SoCal area and are interested in finding a grotto in your area, there is also a link there to help you do that. You will also find a variety of links for Heal the Bay, their calendar of events so that you can get involved. In this month, there is a volunteer orientation and a beach cleanup. 
Heal the Bay will also be releasing the latest draft of a region-wide stormwater permit, which is how the discharge of polluted stormwater is regulated. It will be available for public comment this month, February of 2020. And if you want to be part of the process, you can contact EC at amoe at healthebay.org. L.A. County is also working on a plastics ordinance targeting single-use plastic foodware. And you can contact EC at that same address, amoe at healthebay.org, should you want to learn more or get involved with that. And should you want to get in touch with us here at this show, you can do that a number of ways. You can send us an email, go at butcherbirdstudios.com or Send us a text or leave us a voicemail at 818-925-0106. And a quick reminder to those of you who have done the John Muir Trail, please call that same number and leave us a message about your experience. And if you would like to help make sure that this show continues, please head to your podcast purveyor of choice, subscribe, rate and review the show if possible, and share it with someone This episode of the Go Get Outside podcast was produced, recorded, and edited by me, your host, Jason Milligan. Additional help came from Griffin Davis. And as always, it has been brought to you by Butcher Bird Studios. Next time on the show, Nick Watts, nomad, salty sea ambassador, world traveler, sailboat hitchhiker, podcaster, and director of client relations at Occupation Wild. Come back February 16th for wild stories from Nick Watts. See you then.